Hello and welcome to Fly With Your Shadow, the podcast all about music, mental health and illness, and the mess that the COVID pandemic has made of it all. I'm Jeff Robson and this show comes to you from my home in Winnipeg, Manitoba. In addition to the COVID-related setbacks and mental illness issues that we most often talk about on this show, I wanted to talk about what happens when you're faced with an unexpected major health issue, or when you're forced to look at the identity that you've built for yourself and consider changing it. Today's guest has dealt with those issues and more during a highly successful, highly acclaimed career that has been built over nearly 25 years and seven full-length albums with a new one on the way. My name is Susie Ungerleider, and I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia. Susie Ungerleider is best known as O Susanna, a moniker that she chose to take on when she started performing her own songs in the mid-1990s. In the beginning, she was writing and performing songs that were often dark and sad, with murder ballads and hard tales being a common theme. Her songs and subject matter expanded over the course of five albums made with a few different record labels. When it came time to make the sixth on her own, she reconnected with old friend Jim Bryson, who's probably best known for being a producer and band member alongside Kathleen Edwards, and began a musical partnership that continues to this day. Together they planned for an album that would eventually be called Name Dropper, where Susie reached out to some talented and pretty famous friends to write original songs specifically for the album. It includes submissions from Ron Sexsmith, Joel Plaskett, Jim Cuddy of Blue Rodeo, and our episode 11 guest, Amelia Curran. Also included was Winnipeg's own Carrie Latimer, who's best known for her bands Nathan and Leaf Rapids. In the middle of a crowdfunding campaign for that album, Susie was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to delay the project. Luckily, the album did come out and she overcame her cancer and is healthy and strong today and hopefully will stay that way for a long, long time to come. Recently, after re-releasing her first two O Susanna albums, as she made and prepared for the release of a new album, again made with Jim Bryson and featuring contributions from Carrie Latimer, bassist Basil Donovan of Blue Rodeo and others, Susie made the difficult but right decision to drop the O Susanna name. It turns out that the folk song that we've all known all of our lives was originally written with some very racist lyrics. It was sung in a fake African-American accent in the minstrel-style show, which was based on racist characterizations of black people. I'll link to those lyrics alongside the show at flywithyourshadow.com if you want to see them, but take my word for it, they're pretty ugly. After years of being based in Ontario, Susie, along with her drummer and husband, Cam Giroux, and their son and dog, Willow, who you'll probably hear during the show, moved back to Vancouver, where Susie was raised. You always smile through those I kind of want to get a bit of a bit of background on you here, because a few years ago you released this uh, Girl in Teen City record, and you revealed your secret punk rock past, how you were you you were transformed by DOA and the Sex Pistols and all this stuff. So how the hell does a girl raised on punk rock become Oh Susanna, the sad, dark folk song singing woman? How does that happen? <laughs> Oh, well, I think you know the answer because you know about music. But, um, you know, to me, punk rock was really like a folk 
folk tradition and uh you know back to simplicity and protest and you know raw energy and that's to me what folk songs are i mean um stuff that people can sing and play themselves that's not complicated and has this rawness so and actually you know punk rock it always incorporated all this roots music um you know for one thing i saw you know i was really i was you know a child of people who were into lots of different music but uh you know folk music was kind of part of that tradition of like going to school and you learn folk songs and I was in this kind of enclave of somewhat not my parents weren't hippies but they were lefties and so union songs and Pete Seeger Odetta you know Bob Dylan to some degree that kind of stuff was all around and it was almost like that's what we would sing as kids like these kinds of songs and then when punk rock came around it was basically the same kind of politics but done in this much more aggressive way you know anti-racism labor movement stuff um and you know there was always this kind of blend i mean pete seeger and arlo guthrie came to town and in the mid eighties into in Vancouver and they did a show with DOA and you know, you hear DOA singing midnight special and stuff like that. And, uh, because basically it was like, well, not all punk rock was like that, but the stuff that I was really excited about, like the clash, which, you know, isn't so purely punk rock, but the clash and like, doa and and then there was stuff that was just kind of stupid and and aggressive but fun you know but the dead kennedys those kinds of things and even like x to me was you know would they be a punk rock band i don't know they would play with other punk rock bands but they i would always say hey mom that's like the peter paul and mary of punk rock (laughs) like we try to convince our parents did she see it that way I think they did. I mean, my parents are pretty open. They didn't necessarily... My dad doesn't like aggressive music so much. He loves jazz and he loves the Sadies or something like that. He loves energetic, intense things. But, you know, of course he was going to be like, okay, can you turn it down a little bit? Like we'd play it in the car and he would... He actually installed these headphone jacks in our car so that we could <laughs> That's listen. That's amazing. I know. What an amazing dad. He's like, I don't want to hear that, but you can listen to it. And he would, you know, anyway, we were we were pretty spoiled and, and had supportive parents. And they let us have this freedom to, you know, express ourselves this way. And uh, so... And I mean, I'm getting off topic, but just that I think they recognized that this was an expression of a similar thing that they believed in as well. So it wasn't threatening to them. I know you've just abandoned it, but how did you become Oh Susanna? And and sort of why did you go with that name in the first place? And uh, what did that what what did having that name do for you? Mm. Yeah, abandoning it. I mean. 
Well, it's funny because when I was younger, like 11 or so, I was very much idolizing like Mick Jagger and Pat Benatar and sort of like the cla- what's called classic rock right now, uh, the Beatles and things like that. And so, and I was really obsessed with Marilyn Monroe and these old film stars. And so it always felt like, oh yeah, in order to become famous, you have to transform yourself by changing your name and becoming this glamorous thing. And so that was always in my head. Like I'm, I'm going to be a rock star (laughs) and I'm going to, I'm going to change my name. And that's just how it is. Cause that's what you do. You transform, you become this thing that, you know, I guess also there's a long tradition of that. Like you take out your ethnicity out of your name and you make it palatable, you know, Dean Martin. And, uh, you know, I was just watching funny girl, Fanny Bryce, you know, I can't remember her real last name, but it's very Jewish sounding and Eastern European. And that's where I come from, you know, my, on my dad's side. And so there was this idea like, oh yeah, you can, you can, or even Bob Dylan, like, that kind of thing where you simplify your name and you become this persona. So I think that was always in my head. And I think it was also a way, a tool for me because I think in some ways I was quite shy and didn't know, didn't feel like I could just be myself and go on stage. So I needed to create this sort of, costume or portal into this other realm so that I could go on stage and sing these songs of heartbreak and, you know, these narratives that maybe weren't my own, maybe borrowing the emotional content from my own feelings, but putting it in the context of like old American folk stories, you know, murder ballads or work songs or just kind of songs of hard luck. So I was like, I gotta, you know, my life has been not too difficult. So it also felt like I needed to, you know, all the difficulties I've had, I think have all just been mental. And uh, (laughs) so this was a tool that I could use or a way to just open up this pathway to being a singer. What was your dream for O Susanna? Like, like, where was the, uh, what were you aiming towards? Were you still hoping to be a rock star or, or were you happy just being a singer songwriter? I think, well, I think it was a combo. I think, you know, when you're young, I think, uh, most people I talk to, we laugh about this. I mean, you, at the beginning, if you have, you know, I was quite lucky because even though I started relatively late, I had some very kind of instant success and attention from the music industry. And when that happened, it was overwhelming in a way, but it was also this thing like, oh, I guess this is just what happens and it's just going to keep going. (laughs) And soon I'll be famous. You know, you have this naive, I mean, I knew that I was going to have to work for it and that only a segment of the world saw, knew what I was up to, but it felt like some pretty important people uh, and influential people got to know what I was doing. And I felt super lucky. I knew that was rare, but I was under the illusion that 
those good things just keep going and keep growing. And it was just going to be this, you know, slow climb. You don't really see that actually <laughs> you, the internet can happen and, and everything kind of goes sideways, but not to say that I feel like, um, that things are bad or anything, but I think that, yeah, constantly, I think people are constantly, or I'm constantly recalibrating, like, what do I, what are my expectations and, and how do I be happy within this world that's quite unpredictable and you're relying on, uh, other people's judgment to, to provide your income, which is very odd, very strange. Uh, one thing I've always wondered about, um, and I've, I've never really had much of a conversation in our world, uh, especially early on and hopefully not so much now, uh, was sexism a big thing for you? Did, did you find that you were not getting similar gigs or similar pay or any of those things to the men? It's hard to know because I think that sexism is so insidious. And I mean, you. why well, I grew up in the era of, you know, lots of strong women doing stuff and people knew that you shouldn't be sexist. So it's not like it was the 60s where it was condoned and um, okay to be a jerk. <laughs> but so it's very hard to gauge. But I do think that people, when I first arrived on the scene, it felt like there was a lot of um, encouragement by men mostly i mean most of the people i met were men who were in the industry they were some of them really strongly advocated that i write with other writers and those were men it felt and that looking back on that i was like would that have happened if i weren't female i'm not sure it's hard to say and it's also really difficult to know about the money part, because no one is talking about that. Um, I do think that people thought that women playing music are interchangeable because, for example, I was going to be, someone was approaching a festival director and they said, I've got enough girls with guitars, that kind of thing, that you're somehow interchangeable just because you have a vagina. <laughs> So, which is very strange. Um, yeah, it, I do, th I think that maybe there's also like a, a self-censorship that maybe we do, you know, women do or, or that you can't ask for as much. Or also, I think that when I, as a protection, when I was first starting, I had, uh, I think I used this tactic of, probably looking like I didn't really care what happened. And I think most of the men read that as me being aloof, which I was probably just trying to be aloof so that I wasn't being hurt by them. And they probably read that as someone who wasn't willing to work easily with them, which is probably true. Like, I think I was very, very skeptical and wary of the ickiness that could be in the industry. So I think that I sent off this vibe like, you know what, I'm not, not going to do that stuff. 
I'm, I'm not gonna, that's not what I'm about. Like I'm, I'm not selling sex. I'm not selling cuteness. I'm, you know, so I'm not, I'm not going to try to be as palatable as possible. So I think that if you're a guy and you do that, people just think you're really cool. But if you're a girl, they might think you're cool, but they're going to be like, okay, we're just leaving you alone now. <laughs> so it's, it's tough to, to say what really is happening, but those are my impressions. But you never really had like record companies or managers or anything try to tell you to dress differently or, or act differently or anything? I think I was, I've been so independent. Like I had, I chose to not do, I had, you know, I had a few little offers to work with bigger labels at the very start. And I think I decided to go the indie route because I didn't want to have to face that. I didn't want to have to have that suggestion that I should change what my music or what I look like. And you even had, you had that strength and that wisdom even early on to just know, because a lot of people, if you, if you wave a big record contract, they're going to take it, right? No, I think I had that more then. Well, you have to realize like I had grown up in this punk rock world where everybody did things themselves and you know, Ani DeFranco had just been on, you know, been on the cover of Spin and it just seemed really possible to be someone who was independent. And then also, if you remember, like, if you're selling physical product, people would say, well, you know, you could do a record deal and sell a lot more records, but you'd make the same amount of money as if you went independent and sold a fraction of that. And that seemed very attractive because I could keep all my rights to my music and I could have complete control over it and I didn't have to sell as much. And, I, you know, in retrospect, I think, well, you know, it would have been great to have the marketing dollars to get and get more people to know about what I'm doing because I think now I would have benefited later. But it's very, you know, that stuff is so hindsight is 2020 kind of thing and it's only because the industry changed i think that um with downloads and streaming and things like that is that you know you it's harder now to be independent and in terms of monetary reward it's harder to make money as an independent i think so just in terms of selling your stuff just like getting it out there you mean uh, mm, more, yeah, maybe, get, I don't know, maybe, well, you know, you could sell your record, say, for $15 and you keep, you know, you made, maybe you paid for your record or you got a grant if you're lucky or whatever. Um, and you could sell your record for $15 and you, and that means you've kept $10 of it. Whereas if you had a deal, you would get a dollar of it. So that was how it was presented to me. Like you can do a deal. Um, but then also there were these pitfalls. Like people would be like, well, 
you might not want to do a deal in Canada because you might get ghettoized in Canada and you'll and and they own your rights worldwide and then you can't actually release anything in the states. I mean now this is all irrelevant because of the internet, but at the time it really was this thing of like you need distribution and if you're going to sell your rights to someone and yet no stores can get it in these territories, then you're kind of screwed. So you know, these choices that we've, you know, that I made were based on a kind of a quite a different time. But, you know, the benefit to me, I mean, this is very, you know, into the minutia of the business part of it. But like, the great thing is that I own all my publishing, I own all the masters to my stuff. Um, But it's hard because, you know, there are other people that sell you, you take a gamble, like, do you sell your patent kind of thing? Or do you, you know, or, you know, there's lots of pitfalls on either side. So it's very hard to know what the right step is. But I think for my temperament at the time, it made perfect sense that I was not going to do just any deal if it were the right one. And eventually I did do licensing deals. I've had to like many, many licensing deals and, and they've been great but they have an expiry date. So um, I think when I was first starting, it was really one of these things like you could sign your rights away to five record, you know, five options or whatever, and you're trapped. So, you know, and all, I'd heard all the kinds of crazy stories, you know, that, you know, people ba- getting their album buried because they offended the executives or they give you a deal because they don't, they have another artist that's similar to you that they're pushing and they decide to shelve you in a way and you don't know that's what's going on. Like, But there, there's some evil <laughs> stuff going on in the world of music. But, you know, I think I was quite scared of those things happening. Your past few records, I think you've you've pretty much released them entirely on your own. At what point did you kind of stop worrying about record labels and just start putting out records yourself? Um, well, I had, well, I don't know if I've stopped. I, in fact, with this one that's coming out, it's actually on a record label in the UK and they're really helping me. I'm just so thankful because of having their expertise and their team. And, and it's actually happens to be these guys that I worked with at another label before, like 20 years ago in the UK it's a very circular kind of um, situation where because I reissued some of my catalog, they were like, oh, we love those records. We want to reissue your your Sleepy Little Sailor record. And then I was like, amazing, okay. And then I said, I actually am working on a new thing. And they were like, cool, we were, we'd be totally interested in releasing that. So I think that when I have a personal relationship with with the people and I trust them, then I'm interested in working with them. Um, but I'm also, I think that now I have uh, more perspective in that I can see the benefits of doing a business deal. When I was younger, I was much more of a purist. And I think I thought, you know, F the man, you know, I'm not going to let them do, you know, take my stuff and ruin it or whatever. I was much more hard-assed and and rigid and, uh, 
you know, later on, I'm like, well, maybe it would have been nice to have <laughs> sell out a little bit. <laughs> maybe I should have sold out. <laughs> like, I, I mean, you know, that's how I, that's how I grew up seeing things is like, don't sell out. And then, which served me well to some degree, but I also think that there's a, a way that you, I think I, I'm seeing that some of the machinery can work in your favor. And if you trust the vision of the people you're working with, then it can be a really great thing to have that partnership. I wanted to talk a bit about uh, a bit about the the name dropper period, if if you're okay with it, um, because you you had put together this kind of all star record where you got all these all these friends to write big name friends, Jim Cuddy and all these people to write songs for this record, um, and then you put together this big thing, and I I feel like that was one of the one of the first real big kind of independent. Like I don't know if you had any help initially with that record but i felt like you know with the crowdfunding and stuff it's it seemed like you were doing it all yourself and then well you kind of ran into some trouble <laughs> yeah we we did i mean i did that crowdfunding thing i got very inspired especially by rose cousins because she had done this crowd it was quite new this idea i mean i had done crowdfunding in 1999, where I mailed out these postcards through Canada Post and said, does anybody want to order the record in advance before I've even made it? <laughs> it was very analog. So when I saw that, you know, colleagues of mine were doing this and all you needed were a few hundred supporters and you could get the money and, and actually kind of pre-sell what you're doing, I just got excited about it and I thought it was the perfect project to pitch because it was this very collaborative thing and it could reach more than, than it's not just, you know, I'm making another record. It, it had a real story and, and a, a fun element to it where Jim really was a part of the whole process and Jim Bryson and, you know, it was really a concept where he took it to the next level because I said to him, look, I want to make a record of songs by people I know. And he was the one who said, well, let's get them to give us songs that they write for you or that they've never done before and that no one's heard before. So it was his idea to make it this specialty thing because I was just thinking, you know, I could record my favorite songs by other people. And he's like, no, 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 let's make it like specific. And it that just sparked something in us. And it it was so it was such a fun project. So we did this very silly crowdfunding thing, you know, silly video. And then we even did this hilarious sketch comedy thing where Jim Bryson is calling up. Jim Cuddy and Jim Cuddy's like, who are you? You know, it's all, we're all, it's all, you know, fake, but, uh, you know, him going, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to send you guys a song. I don't know who the heck you are. And, and, um, and then in the end, you know, he sent us a cassette, which is real. He did send us a cassette. He does. I don't know if he still does this, but he 
does all Jim Cuddy does all his writing and his demos instead of recording on his phone, which he probably does now. But at the time he was working with this, you know, old school cassette recorder. And so he sent me this cassette of the song. It's amazing. Like it's a great, I loved it because it had, you know, a lot of noise on it and it's Cuddy singing the song and uh, he just, he killed it in terms of what song he wrote. It was perfect and uh, beautiful, beautiful, very raw and very emotional. And it felt very personal. You know, a lot of times you feel like Jim's not necessarily singing about himself. This one, I don't know if he was singing about himself, but it really felt like it. And... Um, I made a joke, I said it's actually a song about Keeler, but... Come back to me, darling Let me know that you're right And I can't let go of This dying We did this record and we recorded it all and it was really a, so much fun and and then yeah it's kind of funny that we're talking on May 31st because that's actually the day that I was diagnosed with breast cancer right when we were finishing we were mixing the record and I yeah so in 2013 we we're just about ready to you know, plan the next phase of releasing it and sending it out to people and everything. And, and then I got my diagnosis. So we delayed it by a year. Yeah. Oh, it's kind of crazy to think about 2013. Can you talk about what that was like hearing that diagnosis, especially at such an exciting time and what that felt like? Oh my God, I'm already, I'm, it's like a sinking feeling. It's, it's, it was awful. It was, of course, it was awful, but it was also awful because I really had no idea what treatment was available. Now they can do so much and really pinpoint what kind of cancer it is and what, what will fight it. And, and luckily I was in a, in Toronto. So the, Princess Margaret Hospital is very, you know, all the people there are super knowledgeable and on the cutting edge of, of research. So, but before you're, I think the thing that's for me that was really scary is that, you know, my grandmother died of breast cancer. My aunt had it. She survived it. Um, but this idea like that, this is a death sentence if you get this disease. Now I realize that they can do so much for you. And that, you know, I knew I'm like, oh, I can feel something and, and I know something's wrong. And and Jim could kind of tell that I, there was something going on. I wasn't telling him, but he was like, what's going on with you? Are you okay? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I can't tell you right now. I'm not right. Okay. And then, you know, so it just felt the weird thing also is that I think for me, I felt like I was letting people down. Like, well, I remember getting an email from you like 
because I'd pre-ordered the record and I remember mm-hmm. getting a message from you saying, I'm so sorry, you're, the, the record's not going to come out when it's, <laughs> I was like, are you, are you stupid? Like you don't apologize for getting breast cancer. Like you don't, I, know. I, I just couldn't believe. And that was one of those things I was like, man, this must be like, you're doing all this yourself. You're contacting all these people yourself. I don't know whether you just chose to do that or what, but it was like, you're, did I send you a personal message? I think so. I know I I know I responded to it and I was like wow, this is so it's so crazy that you would feel I I can totally understand it. You've you know, you've you've got people to buy this record and they're expecting it at a certain time and then you have to put it off for this reason and Yeah, it's a funny thing of I think that um it's kind of a common feeling like that. that people who get sick feel bad about it for other people. Now now you recognize how crazy that is, right? It is crazy. I think I knew at the time it was crazy, but I, I mean, I still kind of can feel it in my body. Like that I'm, that I think that's part of the grief of, of it is that you, you don't want to be the bearer of bad news and, you're going to create worry and, and yeah, I, I, it's a, it is very strange, but I did feel like, oh, I don't want to tell anybody because they're going to be sad. <laughs> so you're right. It's crazy, but humans are weird. And I think that we often will process things in strange ways i remember you know it's today's one of my friend's birthday like her her birthday and i was like oh man i can't tell her i was going to a wedding the the day the day i got my diagnosis i was going to a wedding that night and you know it was just very surreal so um I don't know. It's probably some kind of also something going on in in my family dynamic where it's like, don't tell people bad things um, at the wrong time because it might upset them or something, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's very strange, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, How long, uh, like how long were you really dealing with it not really knowing you know, what was going to happen and stuff. The thing that was really cool was when I went to the oncologist, the surgical oncologist who actually said, you have breast cancer. He was, it was in person. I mean, I know some people get this over the phone, but I was in, it was in person and Cam, my husband was with me and I knew this was coming And you're kind of, it's almost like you're walking down this dark hallway and you're like, there's that thing that's going to, it's coming for me. And, but the doctor who was like, but we're going to take care of this and you're going to live 40 more years. And even though, so even though it felt like this is terrible news and I don't know what's going to happen, the fact that this doctor was so positive in his outlook 
I mean, I know some people don't get that when they have their diagnosis. It's like, well, we can't do anything for you or, you know, we can try to make you comfortable, but, and make you live longer, but we don't really know what's going to happen. Like, so I feel very blessed in a way. And so as soon as I got into this whole, it sounds very odd, like to be in the treatment, there's a certain comfort and routine to it because you feel like you're doing something about it and that you're taking control of it and that other people are helping you and you have a community there. Like that's just, just the kindness of, of the people at the hospital is like amazing. You know, I was very lucky because some people don't have that experience or they feel like they're not being supported. I mean, Canada, we're so lucky because most of it's covered too. The power of positivity and people just, you know, having something to live for, I think is just, it's the greatest treatment ever. Like, did you feel like the having this great record and wanting to put it out was another reason why you just had to beat this thing so that you, you could get that out there? Was that ever in your mind and was that kind of a goal, like I want to get this done? Yeah, I think, I think that was also, yeah, I think that was part of it too. And I, maybe that was the thing that made me feel bad because I was like, oh, I really want to get this out and I know people are waiting for it and I feel terrible because I'm going to be delaying it and, and I'm sorry. That's, you know, I can remember completely feeling like that. And, but yeah, that, um, yeah, it was great to look forward to that and to and to also, you know, this was terrifying in a way that I had to, you know, 300 and something people did the crowdfunding campaign and I had to notify everybody and and it took me, I think I did that in July. So it took about a month or two, month and a half to figure out what to say. And be comfortable with exposing something that seemed kind of private to a whole bunch of people. And, but it was actually so great because, you know, I think the inst, I think a lot of people who get sick, their instinct is to keep it private and not tell a lot of people. But when you tell people, they can say stuff to you like, we love you, <laughs> we want to help you, or, even if it's a total stranger, it was kind of shocking. Like people sent me stuff and just little things, you know, little crocheted things, you know, or messages, you know, other people in the music business I didn't really know all that well sending me messages. And so there is an element of like, I don't have to live my life not knowing what people feel about what I'm doing or who I am or something. I know I'm getting all emotional about this now, but um, yeah, I think knowing that there were people waiting for, not necessarily the record, but they were like, we're here for you. We're rooting for you. That helped. And and do you feel like that whole thing, uh, I know this is kind of a cheesy thing, but but did that change you? Does having that experience make you look at life differently? Do you enjoy every sandwich a little more? Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, it's a little bit like, uh, 
yeah, you get to, people say things or you get to experience things. Yeah, you, you feel grateful. And uh, yeah, and I, I got to, hmm, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it feels like you you do get to, or I feel like I got over some things, like maybe, maybe just realizing what people, what you mean to people. And uh, I'm getting all overclamped, but like, you know, it's like with your family or even with strangers, like you just, and that, you know what I learned, Jeff, is that I learned what to do more. Like, I'm not perfect, but I learned, no, I learned how to face or be there for someone who's going through something shitty. And that was a big lesson for me because I think if I had heard from somebody that they were quite sick and I would have been like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And then you end up like kind of shrinking away or, or not doing anything. And what I realized is that you don't really have to do much. You just have to show up a little bit and with some kindness and, and that, yeah, because you just, people that I didn't know very well, they're like, here's some macaroni and cheese or you know <laughs> or not even that like I didn't that doesn't matter like someone just even writing me a nice note or you know it just makes you realize oh I think that's the other thing is when you when you have cancer I think that I I think I was scared maybe of abandonment in a weird way or that you know being written off or somehow you know, it's not long ago that people wouldn't even talk about cancer and that it was like a taboo subject. Um, so I think just to have, feel the presence of other people. And I learned, yeah, that, oh, when someone's going through bad stuff, all you have to do is <laughs> offer your support. <laughs> and that's not so hard or scary. Because I think I felt powerless. I think before this, I thought, I, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. Uh, maybe I'll just end up doing nothing. And it's it was like I, a disbelief that I had the power to make a difference, even a, even a small way. So I think that's what I learned from going through this. Sorry, my dog is being wanting to be fed right now <laughs> with this uh over the past couple of years you've uh, or it seems like it's going into the second year i guess you uh last year you re-released sleepy little sailor and now you're preparing for the release of a new record i'm 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 guessing the plan changed a bit with coronavirus but uh what uh what was your what was your timeline looking like for these projects before and how have you kind of made them happen in spite of things i think that um with the reissue of sleepy little sailor that just kind of went 
according to what we were going to do. I, I mean, there wasn't really a big plan to go on tour. I mean, I think there was actually a plan. If I think back, sorry, there was a plan to go on tour, but the label sort of was like, it doesn't really matter to us if you go on tour. <laughs> we're, you know, we're just doing this because we love it and, you know, we want to expose it to more people this time than maybe they missed it the first time or whatever or reach fans that love it and and it was kind of a way to also solidify our relationship and maybe set up the the new material um let's see so again i worked with jim bryson this is the thing that's sort of cool is that with the name dropper project it really helped uh you know jim and i had been friends before and we had toured together a lot and but we didn't see each other for a long time um just because of life and he was on the road with other people and so but when i approached him to do the name dropper thing it really was a one of the most wonderful things was that it helped us to become better friends again and in a you know very collaborative and uh i think because we feel like we kind of grew up together a little bit in music um and i really love his approach he's not really a twang person and i i think that works for me because i can go into this twangy area um, but he kind of brings like the indie punk rock thing to it, um, or like a keyboard sensibility or a texture sensibility that I was really looking for something less rootsy and a little more out of left field. Um, because I, I feel like in some ways, some of my stuff has just gotten less and less twangy. It's just, uh, I mean, Sleepy Little Sailor wasn't even that twangy. I kind of go into these zones of, of, you know, the word country is a weird thing to say because it doesn't mean what it used to. But, um, you know, when I first started, I was really into old time country music and that is my voice lends itself to that and I loved the depth of the heartbreak songs of old time country, but I'm not so obsessed with that anymore. Um, so I loved what Jim could bring to it. This sort of a reverence, but also beauty. Like he has this, he has this way of, you know, bringing this beauty, but a little bit of a rawness or an edginess or something. And um, so I had a few songs written and I said, why don't I just come and we'll record them together. And I always am like, we'll do demos, but I always think, the demo thing is silly. Like usually you do a demo and then you try to chase the demo and recreating the magic of the demo. So I was sort of joking with him, winking at him, like we'll do some demos. So just a way to psychologically make yourself not freak out that you're making a record. I, 
I kind of did that like three times, or I did do that three times where I had like three songs. I'd go to his place. This is before I moved. So I'd take the train up there or drive up there and um, spend a few days with him, and we'd work on a few things, kind of building each song. And I, I mean, basically him doing so much work because I would play the song and, and perform it, and then he'd build this whole kind of beautiful soundscape around it. And so we did that three times and he got um, Peter Von Alten and Basil Donovan to play some bass and drums and on a few of other things. And Carrie Latimer is singing. We got Carrie to sing all these vocals. Like, But that, you know, most of it was just before COVID that we did it all. Like I went there February 2020 and did... Uh, you know, like the ninth song. And then COVID hit and I had one more song that Basil and I wrote together kind of after COVID started. And so most of it was already done. And and then any things we needed, like Carrie's vocals, we sent them to her. And she, it was amazing because he said, he, I said, I'd like to really try some harmonies. He goes, let's get Carrie because first of all, she really wants to do some work. She's bored out of her mind. And uh, she just did something for Jim's own songs. And I was like, oh, and she's such a good friend of mine. And um, I, you know, I know she's incredible harmony singer. And so she did this, you know, on a, I don't know, like four or five songs. She wrote She wrote these arrangements and we kind of gave her free reign. And it really brought so much to the, to the songs. It was like having a string quartet or something added to it. And, but anyway, so we knew, you know, co I was just slowly creating this thing. And while I'm creating it, I start to realize that Oh my God, maybe I'm not going to use Oh Susanna anymore. That was something that kind of evolved along the way. Like basically we've just been slowly chipping away at this record and not working too fast on it. And and Jim's recording with Kathleen and a whole bunch of other people, Ken Yates and Somersets and all kinds of other projects. And so I'd be like, Jim, are you going to mix my record? I mean, I didn't care. I wanted it to. I love doing stuff slowly in some ways. And so, yeah, I think it was one of these things like, okay, now it's finally mixed. Let's give it to the label, see if they really want to put it out. And they loved it. They fell in love with it. And and then we were like, well, how do you feel about not using, o, you know, I'm not going to use Oh Suzanne anymore. What do you, how does that sit with you? And they're like, fantastic. We love it. Wow. <laughs> I know. And um, we're up for that. You know, there were all these challenges, logistical challenges with that. And um, so I, I'm kind of rambling once more, but just uh, I think there was this idea like, well, we could wait. I think this was our idea of waiting, actually, as releasing it in August but it wasn't even really fully done until January. 
and um yeah it was sort of like a really nicely slowly paced thing where that meant you could we could sit with it for a while and then you, we could come to the decision of having more vocals on it and we did this one last song which was like a covid recording which was very difficult because you know in terms <laughs> it's not very difficult i mean this is not coal mining but like you know he's like oh i don't know about that drum part that cam's doing and and I'm like, oh, brother, why doesn't like Cam actually happen to go to Ontario? And I'm like, you guys deal with it. I don't <laughs> I'm sick of this. <laughs> Just, you know, someone does something and then he's not there to coach us and or produce it in any way we're just doing what we want we send it to him and he's like yeah i don't know and i'm like ah shit that means we gotta go do it seven thousand more times you know and it's like and we weren't sure exactly what it is that he didn't like about it and when you're in the same room you can do all that well how about this you know put a towel over the snare and all this sort of stuff you know so I don't recommend making a record <laughs> long distance. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I mean, I think there were ideas about me touring and it's fine. I don't mind. Yeah, it's okay. Can you talk a bit about the reason for ditching that name and, and why deciding that it should just be your name now? Yeah. Um, a number of reasons, but one of the... Basically, the tipping point for me was uh, last summer when George Floyd was killed or last spring when George Floyd was killed and people started talking about, um, you know, pieces of culture that have this, these racist notions in them. And I, I wasn't really even thinking about it, but because I'm white and I'm privileged and I don't need to think about it people are like well you know the original lyrics are very kind of you know they're not kind of they're very offensive they're terrible and most of us have no idea like i had no idea until i heard rumblings that you were changing your name and i was like what's that about so yeah they're they're terrible we we leave that part out of the song that we sing, sing to our kids <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So that's the thing that's so interesting is that it, it turns out like according to Wikipedia or something that Stephen Foster, the writer of Oh Susanna and many, many other songs, he actually, he wrote that song when, I don't know, he was very, very young, like 20 something or before the Civil War. Uh, just before the Civil War, he wrote that song, and he wrote it as a minstrel song. A minstrelsy is a very weird um, tradition of uh, portraying black people in the stereotypical, like, offensive way as, for the sake of comedy and and trivializing um who they are or or I don't know it's like it's very complicated because for example like my husband who loves tap dancing and that all comes from minstrelsy and 
And, but it's, it's a strange tradition of that is a reflection and a perpetuation of racist ideas. And so the song itself is that it's like supposed to be funny. Um, but with our, you know, with the idea of some of a, of people being, destroyed and basically kind of a genocide uh, and using these, these ideas to excuse this kind of genocide and, and this, these ideas about the, you know, people being subhuman and all this sort of stuff. Like, I think that it felt like those lyrics had been changed and the ideas had been changed and people don't, you know, in my naivete, I could sort of think this is something that's a relic of the past and it isn't relevant now, or it's relevant as a historical piece. But I think with George Floyd dying and it just being this recognition that this is the same thing under a different guise, that it felt like, no, 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 no. I, this isn't what I'm about. This is, this is not what I want to be. Uh, even if nobody really knows, it was one of these things where I had to check in and go, I could probably get a, you know, because a lot of people don't know, I could just continue but the more I thought of that, I just thought, oh, if I have to stand in front of one person who knows what I know about this song and they look me in the eye and they say, this song is a, an artifact or, or a symbol or a cultural, um, how would you say it, like propagating these racist ideas that have affected my life, my ancestors' lives, my future, you know, family members' lives, and it has helped kill people and has helped, you know, create, have violence against other human beings. And if someone stood there and said that to me, I'd be like, you're right. And I cannot, I have no way of justifying my use of this name. Because some people, I really talked about it with some people and they were like, well, maybe it's okay because it's been changed now. And I, and it really came down to my feeling of, if I'm standing here having a conversation with someone who has no idea who I am, and this is what they see of me, that that horrifies me and but it's not only about me it's about the really looking at it and not seeing it as like something that's like an embarrassment from the past and that oh you know it's it's not powerful anymore but it is so i think my choice was really had to do with uh, all those things that I just described that, um, and 
yeah, just feeling like I should really step away from that. And also it really, it was more, there were so many other things that were going along with it. Like, um, maybe I think also, you know, I talked with Jim a lot about it. Like he is a big believer in authenticity and, and not hiding behind a character and, I don't mind that so much because I kind of like that play acting and I think it can release certain stories and feelings that people have that they might not show otherwise. But he was like, no, Susie. Because I said, if I, you know, he didn't know what was going on with me and I just sent him a text. I said, if I were going to use another name for my musical project, what do you think it could be? And he said, Susie Youngerlider. <laughs> and I was like, I knew you'd say that because it, and then I had to face like why does that feel so strange why does that feel so weird and you know so it's all been a lot of navel gazing on my part and I don't expect other people to um want to know the minutia of it but it it was it was a something that I felt was it's a, it feels like almost like a, a coming of age or something that I'm finally growing up, maybe. And is that why it's a self-titled record, I guess? My name is Susie Ungerleiter. Is that, you feel like you've arrived now? Is that is it kind of like that? It, well, it felt, you know, I guess maybe it feels like a beginning or it feels like the, it feels like maybe it's the beginning and the end. I mean, I... It's funny because when I last, when I made A Girl in Teen City, I was thinking, maybe this is the last thing I'm ever going to do musically. And I don't know why I had that thought. I mean, maybe it was like, I think I said to Jim, I go, now that I've written this memoir, I feel like I can die now. Maybe I can die now. I'm glad you didn't. I know. I mean, I hadn't. I was over the cancer and stuff, but I was sort of in this, it was, a, it was tied to it somehow. And, um, just trying to get down the memories and, and get closer to figuring out what my own past was and, and where, where it brought me. And, it feels like, yeah, I wanted to introduce the record in this way that it's a beginning. But I, I mean, I think I've always been thinking about endings and beginnings, like the whole murder ballad or the death imagery in what I was writing early on. I think that was about transformation and about, you know, trying to become something and not knowing how to do it and and some things have to die in order for something to be born. And so, yeah, I guess this is part of that, part of, you know, different, different parts of us kind of receding and then other parts of us going to the forefront. So when does the record come out and, and what's the plan? I mean, do we, do we hope for a, for a tour? Do we dare? There's discussions of tours. I think that um, it's hard because I think everybody's trying to go on tour when this is over. Um, 
I think we want, you know, I want to book some dates and, but yeah, the record's coming out in August, August 13th, I believe. And I have singles coming out, like two singles are out. And then maybe by the time this is aired, it's going to be three singles. And so we're slowly let, you know, releasing different, these songs over the next few months. And then, and then it will be out and I have vinyl and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I'm doing live streams and, but I think the idea is to eventually get back on the road and do some tours. <laughs> it's hard to know what's happening. After the credits rolled inside your mind You turned the key in the car And drove back home through the dark Once again, I've got some bonus content from my chat with Susie that'll air on this week's episode of my other show, Tell the Band to Go Home. Check out that show at tellthebandtogohome.com or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Podbean. Do yourself a favor and check out Susie's new songs, including the outstanding brand new single, Pumpkins, featuring Carrie Latimer, Jim Bryce, and Basil Donovan. Wherever you stream your music, and consider heading over to Susie's website to pre-order the album, My Name is Susie Ungerleiter, or some great shirts and hats. Buying music and merchandise directly from artists is a real lifeline in these difficult times, so I hope you'll consider supporting her and the talented musicians involved in making the album. You can find her at suzyungerleider.com, that's S-U-Z-I-E-U-N-G-E-R-L-E-I-D-E-R.com, or you can still type in osusanna.com to be redirected. Of course, I've got links to her website and information on the music used in the episode at flywithyourshadow.com. This show is and will remain ad-free and a labor of love for me. If you want to support the show in some way, please do so by telling someone else about it. Helping to spread the word would be really greatly appreciated. I'm Jeff Robson, and I thank you for listening. And I hope that you'll join me next time on Fly With Your Shadow. What's to be done? Don't you want to have fun? They whisper and talk in your ears. How's that? Is that okay? <laughs> Do you need more? <laughs>